0: Hello America, happy Tuesday. So glad you could join us. It's a big Tuesday in the Far East because Nancy Pelosi, despite China's claims that they would shoot her plane down, she landed safely in Taiwan and made a stand for Taiwanese freedom in the face of Chinese pressure. That is a big moment, a big news story covered all over the world today and certainly to have repercussions in the U.S.-China relations for the weeks ahead. We've got a perfect show with you because I also want to go down to the southern border. In fact, we're going to start there today because that is where Joe Biden, the man who said he wasn't going to build another inch of the wall, he's building some wall now, probably most likely for political reasons, to help embattled Senator Mark Kelly in Arizona to try to survive his election. But they're building a piece of the wall near the Rio Grande, which is a, I guess, a concession that the wall rarely works, the same wall that Nancy Pelosi once called a moral that Joe Biden once suggested might have been rooted in Donald Trump's racism among anyone who comes from south of the border. Big thing there. So we got two great guests today, and they're going to make some news, I promise you. First up, Mark Morgan, former acting commissioner of the Border Protection Agency. He is going to talk to us about the new numbers, the new statistics, the deaths, the gateways, a lot of serious concerns going on in that southern border. And he's going to bring us up to speed on all of those things, including why Biden blinked and started building a wall at this moment. You're not going to want to miss that interview. Mark always gives us a straight shoot. And there's a little bit of a cover-up allegation going on inside the Homeland Security Department over this. We're going to get to that. Republican congressman making new allegations and promoting some, you know, big proof to back it up that Homeland Security is trying to suppress statistics and data and information and evidence from going to its own independent watchdog, the inspector general, to see what the actual net effect of the Biden border policies are on American security. That is a great story. We're going to hit that up with Mark Morgan as well. Then after the commercial break, we're going to take a look at Taiwan and China and the Nancy Pelosi trip. What's behind it? Great guest from the Quincy Institute, Michael Swain, an absolute expert on all things China. He's the director of Quincy's Far East Studies and really has some great insights about how to maneuver China in a sophisticated way. Yeah, there's tension. Yeah, there's problems. No, we don't have to back down and give up or give in, make acts of appeasement. But there are smart ways and there are difficult ways, and he's gonna help us try to sort through that. First time on the show, really excited to have him on a very thoughtful writer, a very thoughtful statecraft actor, someone who believes that diplomacy and smart intelligence can make a situation, even as volatile as U.S.-China relations over Taiwan, safer, better, smarter for all of us, without having to appease. He doesn't believe in appeasement. A real fun conversation ahead for us from Michael Swain. All right, folks, let's take that quick commercial break when we come back. First up, Mark Morgan, good friend of the show, former head of the Border Patrol right after this. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. All right, folks, welcome back. Always excited to have this next guest on. He's a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, former acting commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, and one of the few people in Washington that tells the truth about the southern border. So glad to have him back on the show, Mark Morgan. Mark, great to have you join
1: us today. John, thanks for having me as always. Appreciate it.
0: You are doing such amazing work highlighting what's going on. And I wanted to start with some of the things that we see on a daily basis. Congress last week the Republicans put together a framework, release that to try to create some legislative remedy for the open border that the Biden administration just won 't address. Your thoughts on that because I know some of your ideas were incorporated
1: into it yeah John, I appreciate that yeah so we 're actually really excited about this now look there there are, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done because you said it 's the framework, so to some degree you know, uh, really it's it's time to to start, the hard work begins to roll our sleeve and take this framework and turn it in to actual meaningful legislation that's gonna secure the border and reverse this this administration's just horrific open border policies. But I'm really excited about it because what really started out as really focusing mainly on resources, Uh, they shifted a little bit. So I really applaud their their efforts in the process because there was was several conservative think tanks that got together and formed a coalition. And we really provided in this letter a a significant roadmap. And it focused not on just resources like the wall and technology personnel, but also meaningful policy shifts that need uh, to be done in conjunction with the resources. And that's really what this framework all is about. So I'm really excited about it.
0: Yeah, it's important because there's so much inaction with the Biden administration, so much false statements being made that the border is just fine, that at some point, someone's got to disrupt the dynamic and try to force something. And this seems like The first big move by Republicans to try to create momentum towards disrupting the extraordinary flow of illegal aliens into this country.
1: If I could just real quick put something on that, and what's really significant about this is that they, they talk in terms of border security, so it's just not illegal immigration. They recognize, though, that illegal immigration, that increases our ability to secure our border goes down, and they also recognize that we're not going to solve this problem just by throwing our resources at it. Yes, we need resources, but it's the policies that we need as well, it's the new laws, Uh, that we need. And that's what I'm really excited about this framework.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it seems to have a lot of momentum. A lot of people are excited about it. We're really looking forward to seeing the meat be added to that bone more and more. And so we get the exact ideas out there. I know you're going to play such an important role. While that's going on, the inspector general, the independent watchdog at the Homeland Security Department, someone you know you know, in your former job, he's been trying to audit and make a conclusion about just what impact has the Biden policies had on illegal immigration on negatively affecting the country. Big reports that he's being impeded, that in fact, a memo was sent from Homeland Security telling people how they don't have to comply, avoid turning over documents or turning over systems credentials so that they can do this audit. Republicans on the House Oversight Committee led by James Comer of Kentucky, who would likely be the chairman next year, sent a letter saying this is deeply concerning. This is obstruction. What are you doing? This is something you predicted. I, yeah, I, last time you're on the show, you're like, they're not going to want to let people see the data because it has gotten so bad. You were right on the money. Now the Congress is investigating your reaction.
1: John, you and I, we did, we talked about it. You've you, you mentioned this as well, and this is unfortunately, this is not a surprise. They've been doing. Look, this has been the least transparent uh, or uh, a White House administration that I've ever been affiliated with in, in 35 years of serving this country. And, and here's, and, and look, I get asked this all the time, John. It's like, hey, Mark, you you were part of this incredible team under President Trump that really created the most secure border in a lot of time, you must be frustrated to see that intentionally being unsecured and undone, yes. But what is equally frustrating is not only have they done that, jeopardizing every aspect of this nation's public health, safety, and national security, but they're lying to the American people about it. And look, I remember when I was commissioner of CDP, John, as, as all this came down, I was like, bring it. I was almost proud to participate in those audits because I was proud of what we were doing to secure the border and save and protect American lives. This administration is doing the opposite. And why? Because they know what they're doing is absolutely detrimental to this nation's public health, safety, and national security.
0: It's really, really frightening. And the more you look at it, another area where I think there's been an underreporting and we keep hearing about it the number of people, migrants, trying to get to the country who die near the border and whose bodies are recovered. It's at an all-time high, I believe, like six, 700 already for the year. We're not to the end of the year. But a lot of people believe that number is significantly underreported. That's an area I know you've been stressing, that this journey is not only rife with rape and extortion, but it often can end in death for these migrants.
1: John, absolutely. This goes hand in hand with what your your previous uh, topic about them not being honest, and they will not provide the information to those entities, whether it's Congress or DHS, that have the have not only the statutory, but but really the moral obligation. To, to to be the watchdogs. It's their job. And this is one of those topics. Let me ask you and, and, and everyone listen, when was the last time you heard the president or anybody from the White House or Secretary Marcus talk about the number of dead migrants that they have recovered along the Southwest border? It doesn't happen. They do not talk about it. Look that number right now, I'm a conservative, is 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 reaching close to a thousand. A thousand individuals who who have risked their lives and actually paid with their lives because this administration had said that risk it all and if you get to our borders, we're going to let you in. So they're doing it. They're literally handing their lives over to the cartels. And as you mentioned, we're, we haven't even talked about the, the, the atrocities that are associated with those on their journey. We know that, that Doctors Without Borders, for example, say 30% of young women and children are raped or sexually assaulted on the way up. I, I can tell you story after story how local officials and abortion agents have interviewed a girl 12 years old that have been raped more than once on the journey, or that moms. Parents give them – give their 12-, 14-year-old own daughter the morning-after pill because they're expecting that they're going to be raped on their journey up here. And lastly, we haven't even talked about the atrocities associated with human trafficking that is skyrocketing in association with the skyrocketing, illegal smuggling going on. But you'll never hear this administration mention a word for that, and apparently they're trying to hide documents that prove it.
0: Yeah, it's jaw dropping. We had uh, Congressman Comer on the show Friday night on the TV show, and he is deeply concerned about what he's seeing inside the Homeland Security Department. A complete not only lack of compliance with the law, but an effort to obstruct actual information flowing to the overseers of in Congress and in the agency. Uh, jaw dropping stuff. One of the things that happened last week, a little bit of a reversal, a a little bit of hypocrisy, because Joe Biden said, I'm not putting another inch of wall together when I become president. But last week, the White House acknowledged, well, they are building some of the wall, at least in the UMA sector. Your thoughts on their need to do that and the political impact it probably has to try to save Mark Kelly's job as senator of Arizona?
1: Well, Well, first of all, apparently, walls work. After five and a half years, five and a half years of every Democrat actively campaigning and saying that walls didn't work. Nancy Pelosi, I still remember 2019, January 2019. I really, listeners, go look this up, Google, Google it. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer stood together and said two things. One, walls were ineffective and walls were immoral. Mark Kelly heavily campaigned that walls were ineffective. All lies, all untrue, but, but people were buying it, right? And as you said, the President Biden in a campaign said he was not going to build one foot of wall. Wow, what has changed? Well, I, I guess according, it, it's okay as long as the Democrats justify why they need to build the wall. Their reasons are okay. It's it's absolutely hypocrisy. But but here's what's important. I, I think that most American people, especially Arizonians, are going to see right through this. Mark Kelly is an embattled race. He, he, you know he, his chances of winning are very very slim. So they're they're trying to get something. But let's let's keep this in mind. They're only building a little bit. They're filling in some gaps, but it will make no difference whatsoever because the cartels will just shift, right? They're just going to go left and to the right a little bit where there's no wall. Illegal immigration will still continue, and our borders will still be unsecured. This is all smoke and mirrors, and it's all political, and it's just one more element of hypocrisy and disgusting politics that this administration continues to drive.
0: Really, it's done for political purposes. They don't really want to do this, but they got to give Mark Kelly something to hang his hat on in a very difficult reelection race. But just shameful.
1: If I can, one more thing on the wall. So, so you know, you know what? One of their justifications, which uh, again, it, 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 there's multiple reasons why the wall works. So, so their their justification right now, but it still supports a, a reason why walls work. But they're they're actually building the wall, quote, to protect. Illegal aliens, because the areas that they're coming across, where, the, where there is no wall, the, 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 it's dangerous for the migrants. So think about that. But, but, and I'm all for that, and, I, and that's part of why we said the wall works. It actually saves migrants' lives. But they're not putting the wall up to protect American lives. They're putting the wall up to save illegal aliens' lives. But meanwhile, all along they it said it's immoral effective. It's just, just hypocrisy
0: americans are so much smarter than the democrats are giving them credit for and it's going to come to a roost in the in the november election i think another thing a funny thing happened when texas had a, a, the border crisis no one in washington dc or new york cared but once governor abbott started bussing those illegal migrants up to washington dc New York, they suddenly started whining and carrying an interesting twist today governor abbott said listen you two guys you got a little taste of this by what i bust your way why don't you come down to the border and see what's going on of course both Democratic mayors are going to turn them down and have turned them down. But how about that? Two cities that no longer think illegal migration doesn't have a cost. They're starting to realize there's a real cost to it. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think, John, I think this is something you and I talked about before, too. Everybody was referring to this, you know, of Governor Abbott, you know, sending uh, migrants to D.C. as a political stunt. It wasn't going to do anything. I, I, look, I, we, we were one of the few that, that supported this. And one of the reasons why is I said, hey, look, it's going to bring awareness. Right. Uh, Among other things. And wow, that's exactly what it's done. It it had the results that Governor Abbott wanted to have. But how hypocritical, you know, how just unbelievably tone deaf and insulting this mayor after she received about five or six thousand to actually just decry, oh, my gosh, it's a catastrophic crisis. This is a humanitarian crisis. We need help. We're overwhelmed. We need the federal government to step in. Well, what I tell her, what I would tell her is, where the heck have you been for 18 months? Why don't you do exactly as the government Abbott has invited and go down to the border? It's insulting. Those border communities, they receive five or 6,000 every 24 hours. I was there a couple of weeks ago, right, where, where a judge for the first time in our life under the rule of law declared that they're being invaded because every aspect of their finances, their resources, and public health and safety are being negatively impacted. And, and these mayors have been supportive of the open border policies day one. Remember, what she didn't say is, is why are migrants wanting to come to D.C.? It's because of her support of sanctuary cities. She doesn't talk about the open borders, the drugs pouring into D.C., killing D.C. residents. She doesn't talk about the 900,000 Godaways of which there are criminals among them, and they make their way to D.C. All she asked of them for, not to solve the crisis, she asked the government to give them more U.S. taxpayer money just to help facilitate it.
0: Yeah, that's what they want. Just a little bit. Of, and maybe some National Guard help too. Just remarkable. These statistics are important. We talked about the deaths that probably aren't being reported. The deaths that are reported already at a historic number. But getaways, gotaways, whatever we call them these days, it looks like it could be a million this year. Your thoughts about the danger? Because those are probably the people more than anyone else that are already trying to evade capture because they're up to something ill intent here in this country.
1: That's exactly right. There are more getting away every single day. That's another record that this administration has shattered. And yet again, it's not a good record. Right now, the known gotaways, if you said in this administration, this fiscal year so far, we still have a few months to go, has been over 500,000. And again, those are individuals who have illegally broken into our country, invaded apprehension, and made their way to every state. If you add in the almost 400,000 uh, last fiscal year, that's 900,000. But John, keep in mind, I know you and I talked about this, but those are the known gotaways. If you talk to board trading so they're risking their lives every day on the front line they'll say that the unknown gotaways put that number well over a million and just to put it in context for your listeners is is that there, there are nine states nine states in this country whose whose the state's population hovers around a million or less and and so there are more than a million that, that illegal aliens that have broken in and evaded apprehension. And the truth is, here is the truth. It's not hyperbole. It, 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 this is a fact. There are bad people among them. There are murderers, rapists, pedophiles, and gang members. How do I know that? Because in the same 18 months, Border toll has arrested over 20,000 criminal illegal aliens, including a 900% increase from 2020 to 21 of murder suspects. And mur- those convicted of murder, a 200% increase in sexual offenders, increase in gang members, increase y- every single criminal alien category has seen a significant increase in apprehensions uh, under this administration. So just think about how many murders, rapists, pedophiles, and gang members are among the million-plus known and unknown godaways.
0: Uh, it's just jaw-dropping. And there's another statistic that has jumped out at me. I've been monitoring this for a while, and it just seems to grow by the day. We're only two-thirds of the way into the fiscal year. We are in track to blow away the 2021 record of the number of people who have been encountered, arrested, detained who had prior convictions. And it isn't just for illegal reentry. entry A lot of people think, like, oh, they're just people keep coming back and they keep getting arrested for that. No, drug possession, trafficking, sex trafficking, human trafficking, people directly tied to the opioid trafficking. These are big numbers. Your thoughts of the number of legal migrants that already have a criminal record back in this country?
1: Exactly, look, and, and, and the, those that they've apprehended on the border, like I said, they've seen a 900% increase on those they've apprehended that, that either had a conviction for murder or had been charged for murder. A 900% increase, that, that, that's that's unbelievable. I mean, my question is how, how John, how did securing our borders become a right or left thing? When, when did we go wrong there? I, I just don't understand it. I mean, and we haven't even talked about the drugs pouring in, killing Americans every single day. Uh, yet, yet we're talking about 900,000 known gotaways, and again, among them, an increase of criminal aliens pouring into the country every single day. And, John, we haven't even talked about this fiscal year the 50, 50 illegal aliens the F, uh, that they uh, encountered on the FBS terror screening database. I mean, when is enough enough?
0: There's another one, 50. According through the end of June, 50 of the illegal migrants that they have apprehended with prior criminal records, their prior criminal record involves homicide or manslaughter. So you get 50 people doing that, 1,100 driving under the influence, 631 with burglary, robbery or larceny, and domestic violence, 900. Illegal weapons, possessions, 225. Sexual offenses, 248. Just stunning numbers when you take a look at how serious the crimes are that are in these thousands of people now coming into the country with crimes.
1: You haven't even mentioned the, the thousands of gang members that they apprehend. Yeah, and that's on the border. And and then what about the interior? It's the same thing. I mean, that's one of the things that's so frustrating. So we, we focused on the border for obvious reasons, but interior. And th- this is another reason why Secretary Marcus is the most dangerous man in this administration, because as we're seeing the, the, the highest increase of illegal immigration in our lifetime, John, we're seeing the lowest number of arrests and deportations of ICE agents. So, so I mean, if you look historically, 90% of those that ICE arrested in port are those illegal aliens that also have criminal conviction and or are gang members. And yet w- w- last year we saw a report where they actually forced ICE to release 14,000 criminal aliens back into the streets and the country. I mean, this is out. – we've never seen anything like this in our lifetime, John. It makes no sense from an American perspective to protect our sovereignty and protect the lives of Americans. Literally, since you and I've been talking, another 20, 30 Americans died from drug overdose or fentanyl poisoning. And we know that 95% of fentanyl comes from the wide open Southwest border. It just doesn't make sense.
0: It doesn't at all. And it seems like the crush of danger is getting so unbearable to the administration that they're starting to buck a little bit with the wall thing and trying to thwart the people from seeing this with the trying to obstruct the Homeland Security Inspector General. But at some point this dam breaks, you've had a good sense of how illegal migration is going to play in the electoral politics. November, this is an issue because every state's become a border state, probably going to have a significant impact on the November election, don't you think?
1: I I think so and, and finally what what we're seeing a little we're still not there yet but we're finally seeing Republicans but let's be honest, Sean. That, that there have been Republicans uh, that, that have been part of the problem too. But we're seeing now is is more Republicans coming out of the shadows, uh, uh, stop being silent and actually become on the front lines to really talk about this issue. You see it in the polls when you talk about border security. Uh, the, the administration's completely upside down. I think more Americans are aware. I think this administration has overplayed their open border policies, and I think it's going to play a significant role. If you look at the candidates in the primaries right now, it's all over the place of uh, the importance of war security. Um, you know, John. I know we're running out of time, and, and you know, but I think what's frustrating here is, again, you don't have to be a border security expert, and this should not be a right or left thing. To simply secure our border, protect American people from bad things coming in, and look, this is not about this is not about immigration. This is about border security. Again, as illegal immigration goes up, though, our ability to secure our border goes down, and we can have another discussion about how we can improve our legal immigration process. All for that, but we have to secure our borders first.
0: Yeah, it's so essential to get that. It has to start there. There's a lot of things. I think there's a lot of goodwill in Congress to allow more legal migrants to come in to take jobs that others that people don't want to make sure that the work pool's there. But you can't have it with all of this chaos now. The goodwill is not there if the chaos continues to ensue and the danger continues to mount. And I think that's what these statistics show. Your prediction about what may happen after November, if Republicans get one or more chambers of Congress The Republicans' best tool seems to be budget authority. Use the budget bills to try to get some reversal of this border. You've had a lot of great ideas, and you've been advising people. Do you think that actually has some impact next year?
1: Look, I I have some faith. My faith has, has improved, John. But I think at heart, just after 35 years of law enforcement and, and knowing Congress, I'm still skeptical. Uh, because keep, keep in mind, and this just isn't something I'm pulling out of thin air. Remember, under the first two years of the Trump administration, he had the White House, the House, and the Senate, and they still failed to pass a single piece of meaningful legislation. Had they... 85% of what Biden and Secretary Marcus is doing, they wouldn't have been able to do because there would have been a law in place preventing them. Um, and so although now I think there's been a, a more awareness, there's a stronger coalition together, there's been clear roadmaps that have been provided them. And again, I think this administration has overplayed their hand. And I think they know if they don't do something, what's going to continue to happen. So um, I, I'm more confident I've ever been that the Republicans step up and do the right thing. But you're right. Remember, President Biden is still going to be in the White House. So this is going to take an incredible amount of political courage, strength and will for the Republicans step up. And, for example, use the power of the purse to push back and say, hey, look, for example, we're, we're, we're going to be OK with closing down the government until you secure the border. That I'm not sure they're going to do.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's exactly right. They're not going to be able to get that done until a presidential election changes leadership in this country. Mark, it is always an honor to have you on. What's the best way for people to stay in touch with the great work you're doing at Heritage?
1: You know, uh, uh, follow Heritage uh, organization as well as the Fair organization. If you go to both those websites, uh, you're going to see a tremendous amount of information. I really appreciate you mentioning that because th- that go there. That's where you can really, on your own, independently, educate yourself and make yourself more aware about the truth and reality. Stop listening to the administration. Stop listening to pundits, and actually get the facts and you understand the devastation that's happening on our
0: southwest border yeah and listen a lot of the ideas that i just mentioned that the framework of legislation came from mark from the good folks at heritage foundation such an important we talk about problems everybody can highlight problems few people know how to solve them mark morgan knows how to solve them and heritage does and we're so lucky you're doing that work for us right now sir well
1: i appreciate john thanks for having me
0: yeah we'll have you back on soon this story is not going away (laughs) so thanks again my friend yes All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to turn our attention to Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi has touched down in Taiwan. There are echoes of the 1996 crisis. I got to cover that when Bill Clinton and Congress were at odds over what to do with the Taiwan Straits crisis. We're going to talk to George Swain, a great diplomatic expert on China and Taiwan, right after this. First, take a commercial break. and protect your most important asset, the equity, in your home.
2: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door.
0: All right, folks, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Nancy Pelosi's in Taiwan today. This has been creating a big international heartburn moment for China, the United States, and quite frankly, a lot of our allies in the region. It's probably going to go off without a hitch. There's not going to be any military blowups as of today. But it's a signal that the relationship between the United States and China has significantly changed over the last few years and we have a perfect expert to explain those changes and why they matter so much at this moment. He's Michael Swain, director of the East Asia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible State Graphic and Organization. I really appreciate it a lot. Michael, great to have you on the show.
1: Hey, thanks very much. Really, really happy to be on it.
0: It's such an important moment in U.S.-China relations. I mean, maybe almost as important as Nixon really reopening the relations Everything has changed. We see China, you know, doing provocations around Japan, around the South Pacific. We have a lot of rhetoric going on. Tell us what's different about this moment in Chinese-U.S. relations versus maybe five or ten years ago.
2: Well, I think what's different about it is that we've seen the relationship on a on a more or less steady slide downward for the last oh, five to ten years, even. And there has been very little alteration of that trajectory, although the Biden administration is not as bellicose and not as ideological and, and unpredictable as the Trump administration was regarding China. But nonetheless, there is still this deepening sense that um, each other really poses an existential threat to the other, that um, each other is, is out to undermine and weaken the Chinese certainly think U.S. policy is designed to, to weaken, undermine, and contain China and, and really doesn't do much other than that. And so you, you have this kind of um, mutually reinforcing negative cycle that's going on with each side assuming the worst of the other and then uh, you know, interpreting whatever happens in that worst light so that you narrow even further the options for engaging in a meaningful way. Now, reinforce that with the domestic situation in both countries where you have leaders that are prizing themselves on standing up to the other side, um, that that they're they're now looking at different political events that are going on, the midterm elections in the U.S., and then after that, the presidential elections in 24. And in China, a major, major party congress only happens every five years, and that's going to be highlighting Xi Jinping's position within China, and he wants to look large and in charge in terms of his position within the regime. So neither government is inclined towards um, talking about n- meaningful types of engagement and mutual types of accommodation or understanding. Or here. Most of them are pointing fingers. Uh, the U.S. is saying you know, China needs to be taken into account, take, need, need to recognize U.S. interests, and the Chinese are saying the same. So in the middle of this drops Nancy Pelosi, who decides you know, she's gonna go to, China, to Taiwan, pardon me, and, um, but it's just like business as usual. What's the problem? This has happened before, so, you know, why be concerned this time? And yet, this situation, given this larger context, given the kind of domestic uh, you know, politics that are going on within both countries, makes it uh, an a unusual, if not unprecedented, situation that has to be handled with some real care and caution. And we haven't seen that coming out of the U.S. administration, in my view.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people have that feeling. And it's really interesting because if you turn on TV, you, you get two doses of opinion. One is we can't risk lighting a stick of dynamite. Uh, let's just back off. And the other one's like, we can't give in to bullying, right? And there's like the two, you hear that all day. But in between here, there is a much bigger issue. There's a fascinating column today in The Hill. I don't know if you had a chance to see it by Valerie Shen. But she said that one of the things that Zixi Bing understands is that the continued Taiwan democratic success story is a threat to his own authoritarian rule. That's why he's so sensitive about promoting Taiwan right now. Your thought to the contrast of Taiwan still being pro- having economic progress, freedom, and the fact that it creates an uncomfortable contrast for Xi Jinping as he tries to carry out his agenda in China?
2: Well, yeah, I think it, it certainly does pose that kind of contrast for a lot of people. And But I I wouldn't necessarily interpret Xi Jinping as being primarily motivated by the contrast in political systems per se. I think what motivates him more regarding what's going on in Taiwan is the evolution of attitudes on Taiwan about the mainland and about the possibility of future reunification there because of what's happened in Hong Kong, because of what's gone on in, in Xinjiang and and other places, many, many Taiwanese now, I mean, they just do not believe that there's any viable way, uh, no one country, two systems, as the Chinese put it, that you could have that would allow for a peaceful reunification. And therefore, the prospect of that unification um, could be declining. And so the Chinese are, are then looking at this situation and saying, well, how, how are we gonna make sure that Taiwan doesn't become permanently separate from the mainland? or eventually how we reunify and that's i think that's what what motivates them is the concern that yeah
0: that's the fulcrum question isn't
2: it going to get locked in and that the u.s is going to be reinforcing it increasingly which is going to make it a, a reality and so you know the chinese can't tolerate that i mean they just simply can't accept that it's too much of a threat to their own regime and in in this broader sense of um nationalism yeah, no,
0: that is the fundamental concern that China has. When you talk to the intelligence people, that's really what the, they point out here, that Taiwanese sentiment seems to be moving further and further away from the possibility of reunification. I think that that's the heartburn that drives so much of this. As we look out now, the Pentagon and the White House said yesterday, we do not support Taiwan independence. Is that an important statement or just rhetoric right now?
2: Oh, I think it's a very important statement, but they've got to do more than just talk. Um, I I think it's, you know, they keep reiterating the one China policy has not changed. We still adhere to the Taiwan Relations Act, the three three communiques, and the six assurances. Those are the three different documents or sets of documents that define U.S.-China policy, although they've now started putting the Taiwan Relations Act in front of the other two, which has not been the case historically. So, yeah, but it's important that the U.S. government says it does not support Taiwan independence, and by that, that it means that it will not backstop an effort by Taiwan to establish what's called legal or de jure independence from mainland, because that would be the end of the one China policy, which is the basis for stability between the the, the Chinese and, and, and the United States. So yeah, they're going to say that, but they've got to start doing things that indicate that they are willing and able to put real limits on the extent to which the United States and Taiwan will have relations with one another um, that really seem to be moving over into the formal or official stage. I mean, even the, the statement that was issued as Pelosi landed in Taiwan begins with, this is an official visit by the United States to Taiwan. And there you have the person who is the number three person in line for leadership in the United States, landing in Taiwan on a U.S. military plane with the same kind of insignia and painting as a Air Force One. And yet we've got this unofficial one China policy where we acknowledge without recognizing formally, but we, we don't challenge the Chinese view that Taiwan is part of China. And so put that all together and make it sound see, sensible to me because it's not sensible.
0: Yeah, that's what makes people so nervous, because there isn't a lot of sensibility to how this is kind of structured, and so it becomes more and more uncomfortable. Some in the military have said that they think an invasion in the next five years or 10 years is likely. Do you share those sentiments, or do you think there is a way to keep detente between U.S., China, and uh, Taiwan?
2: No, I, I don't. I would not predict to that by any means. I mean, I think there certainly is a danger and the United States and the American people should not downplay that danger. This this issue is a vital interest for the Chinese, and it's also, to a certain extent, a vital interest for the United States, I, although I wouldn't put it as high up the list as it is for the Chinese, but nonetheless is regarded by the United States as a very, very important issue. So, you know, I think both sides uh, really need to be handling it very carefully. But I would not say that a conflict is inevitable. I think there is ways to strengthen and to reinforce stability across the state, but there has to be credibility to the one China policy. There has to be credibility to the Chinese commitment to pursue peaceful unification as a first priority. And we um, at Quincy have been trying to put out analysis and other um, you know, statements that, that really reinforce the need for these kinds of things. We just finished a major force structure study that looks at how uh, we can establish a stable prostrate situation without spending huge amounts of defense dollars. And I've written recently a, an assessment about inflating the Chinese military threat, which I think does go on. We need to have a more accurate, balanced understanding about what we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, I think some of our threat assessments are probably twenty, twenty-five, thirty 30 years old. The world has changed so much. So updating that and giving us an honest assessment of the postures, I think, is something that can be really, really valuable. What's your grade for Joe Biden's call with Chinese leaders over the weekend? Helpful, not helpful, made progress? What's your gut tell you?
2: It, it tells me that there's not a whole lot that's really changed. And I think you look at the current Pelosi landing in Taiwan, and it sort of confirms that. Um, you know, I think they... I mean, these two leaders know each other, and it's good that they talk, for sure, and, but they've spoken now, what is it, I, I don't know how many times, uh, I can't recall the exact number, but many, many times, and many of these conversations consist of exchanging talking points, and you really don't get into a real give and take on substantive issues, and the U.S. All, uh, always announces beforehand, there's nothing you know, major substantive that's going to come out of this, we just want to, quote-unquote, keep the channels open. Well, in my view, you've got to do a lot more than just keep the channels open in dealing with the Chinese. You have to be able to engage with them in meaningful ways. And I don't mean by any means conceding to Chinese demands or anything like that. I mean laying out what American and what Chinese interests are, recognizing each other's interests, recognizing that both contribute to the current problems that we face and that both have to contribute to solving them. And that requires making some hard decisions on both sides that involve restraint, that involve more mutual understanding, that involve clear definitions of where you don't want to go in the relationship, but also very clear understandings about where you do want to go and how you will be able to build greater understanding and more cooperation where it's necessary, like on climate change, like on pandemics, like on the global financial environment. I mean, all these things require meaningful U.S.-China cooperation. You can't have these if you're sitting there shooting at each other and pointing fingers at each other all the time.
0: While this is going on, President Biden's taking an interesting tack and, and said, even with a lot of tension, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of status quo tensions. He said, hey, I'd like to get a new nuclear deal with China and Russia. Russia's probably less likely to do that right now. But that sends an interesting signal that China is at an area where there could be some potential engagement.
2: Well, In the near term, unfortunately, I don't think so. Um, Over the longer term, I would hope so. And I would hope that the Chinese, as they develop, and they are developing their nuclear arsenal, they're not like creating a massive nuclear arsenal that's going to rival or exceed that of the United States, as some people say. I think that's very unlikely. But they could have uh, up to 1,000 nuclear weapons uh, in not too long a period of time. Of course, we've got 1,500 deployed and many more thousands of warheads, and the Russians the same. But I think there needs to be, at some point, some serious discussion about uh, how do you really establish some level of strategic stability. And right now, in general, we are in a phase where arms control agreements and negotiations are basically moribund. I mean, that nothing's happening. And you've got these, you know, you've got the war in Ukraine, you've got this confrontation with the Chinese, so that the Chinese feel themselves insecure about talking about the saints on their nuclear situation, and nuclear weapons because they think they need to strengthen their deterrent capabilities. Uh, therefore you know they're not going to talk unless the United States is going to bring its arsenal down. Uh, so you've got a real problem in, in being able to just get the ball rolling with both countries. and there's been efforts over the years to do that. Um, but I think people have to really keep at it and you have to be able to present an argument that is really going to be convincing, to both sides, and I think that includes the idea on the U.S. side that missile defense needs to be included in uh, nuclear negotiations and not just about offensive nuclear missiles. And the whole idea of no first use and whether or not that is a viable concept that can be applied and used uh, for the United States with the exception of the kind of extended deterrence commitments that the U.S. has to its, its closest allies. So all of these things I think can be discussed but they have to be done in ways that are not accusatory, in ways that are not couched in this larger context of, you know, adversarial suspicion, distrust, etc., that you now have in the, in the relationship.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a remarkable time to,
2: to see. If I could just add, in the past, the U.S.-China relationship, when it, when it confronted real problems, it had interlocutors who um, were seasoned, experienced individuals who had dealt with their counterparts on the Chinese or the U.S. side for some time, had established a certain familiarity and a certain level of, uh, dare I say, a trust, and were able to discuss some of the issues in a very frank way and a more reasonable way without just going through the usual talking points. Those individuals do not exist today in the U.S.-China relationship. And I think we need to... Um, either bring in the people who have been involved in those kinds of discussions in the past, or we need to try and develop that kind of interaction and relationship. But it's hard to do it while each side is demonizing the other. Yeah,
0: no, it doesn't create any any progress in that scenario. The last quick question: the one lever it seems that the United States has is the continued access China needs access to are U.S. markets. Is there a carrot and stick approach that the administration can use to try to get to a good place, or does that just add to the hostilities when you start talking about access to U.S. markets?
2: Um, I think, in general, it doesn't really it doesn't really serve American interests to be saying that. Um, I think in in areas where national security is really related, in some technology areas and such, of course, you don't want Chinese access, and there's a lot of concern about. Chinese deployments of telecommunications in the U.S. and that sort of thing. But in terms of trading relationships, um, I don't think the United States, it hasn't gotten anywhere with the, the, the Trump sanctions. Uh, they have hurt American workers more than they have benefited American national security Um So I think they, they only can be used in a very selective way with clear objectives in mind and clear pathways to you know raising sanctions or or limitations in response to certain actions that the other side would take. And they have to be very clear about this. And the United States has not been sufficiently clear about this. And it's taken actions which really haven't benefited its own interests and have, as I say, hurt American workers. So I would be very cautious about using that kind of toolkit.
0: Yeah, such a great point. Michael, this is such an important conversation. Really glad to have you on. What's the best way for people to keep abreast of the good work you're doing at Quincy?
2: I think uh, you know if you've got a computer, go on the website. <laughs> you know'm I'm, I'm, I'm publishing a good deal on Responsible Statecraft, which is the site that that put, that uh, pushed out a lot of doc, uh, a lot of um, writings, not just by Quincy people, but by other people who are oriented towards the restraint view in foreign policy. So I would do that. I'm also tweeting a lot. I tweeted the the 10 tweet thread this morning about the Pelosi landing in Taiwan. So I think that's probably the two best ways to to follow it. Yeah,
0: great advice. Good stuff. Well, an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for spending so much time with us today and making sense of a very tense situation right now. We're going to watch it play out over the next few days here at Just the News. But thank you so much again, sir, for your time.
2: Absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah,
0: great, great conversation. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Delve into the shadows of the mind.
2: CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to two great guests, Mark Morgan, Michael Swain, two very thoughtful, very detailed information, news-oriented interviews. I'm so proud to have such expert guests and such honest brokers of data join the show every day. So thanks to both of them. Now, before we go, I wanna say thank you to my good friends at my patriot supply why because they have made an extraordinary offer to the justin news family to john solomon reports fans that's right my patriot supply which has got an eye on the worldwide farming crisis right now they know there's panic in the commodity markets there's fair starvation in third world countries yes there is a farming food crisis on the horizon partly caused by the war between russia and ukraine partly caused by supply chain and inflation gas prices causing fertilizer to go up, making fertilizer less accessible to farmers. It is irrefutable that we're heading into a moment of food crisis. So I urge you to get a prudent supply of emergency food. Have it on hand for your family at your home. At least four weeks will be worth doing, right? That gives you a buffer to get through any difficult time that might occur in the next few years. And because of my good friendship with the folks at My Patriot Supply, we've arranged for you To save 50 bucks on a four week emergency food kit. That is a great deal. How do you do that? I have my own URL, thanks to my Patriot Supply. They created it. It's called Prepare with Solomon. Prepare with S O L O M O N.com. Prepare with Solomon.com. Go there. You're going to get the $50 off. You're going to get a kit that contains enough meals for four solid weeks per person with more than 2,000 calories a day, because that's what you need for a sustainable energy, sustainable diet. This special offer is only available at preparewithsolomon.com. So go there today, take this off your worry list, have some emergency food supplies. Hey, if we have a tornado, an earthquake, a hurricane, it comes in handy, as does any problems that might show up at the grocery stores next year when mm-hmm. food shortages are expecting to worsen a little bit. We're really excited about that. Thanks to my good friends at My Patriot Supply. They are Five-star rated. People love them. They've served hundreds of thousands of customers. They are pros. Go check them out today. I love them. I've got my emergency kit coming in the next couple weeks. I'm excited about that. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Before I go, tune in tonight to Just the News, Not Noise at 6 p.m. on Real America's Voice. Why? Because Senator Marshall Blackburn is going to be with us talking China and Pelosi. We're going to have a couple of other really good guests as well. We're loading up with some pretty big names, so... Check it out tonight. We'll be there at 6 p.m. As always, with my good friend, Amanda Head, one of the great journalists in the country. Check us out. We'll be there. And otherwise, we've got you covered day and night, 24-7 with breaking news at justthenews.com. You know how to go there. I'm excited for that as well. All right, folks, have a great night. God bless you. Thanks for listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News.